This is the last of a seven-part series that we have been offering up since Easter, asking the question upon what do we stand. This series grew out of uh, the conversation we have had uh, around here lately, asking, does the church just give itself over to the culture, or does the church actually stand on something apart from culture? We were reminded of Malcolm Muggeridge's comment that when we stand for everything, we stand for nothing. And so as the staff discussed it, we decided that the seven parts of this series should be the, that being the perfect number, the seven rocks upon which we stand as a church. During this series, we considered uh, and confessed that we stand upon each other as a community of faith, as a fellowship, that we need each other because none of us individually uh, has the truth. None of us. uh, I don't have it, you don't have it, yet together we have something closer to it. We confess that we stand on the authority of Scripture, not so much literally as realistically, as the written revelation of God's truth to us, revealed through the story of the Hebrew people and the story of Jesus Christ. Emily preached that we stand on the providence of God, that while we may not understand God's ways in the moment, Looking back through faith, we see the hand of God moving among us, weaving a tapestry of something that makes sense. We confess that we stand on the sovereignty of God. Again, that I don't know fully the truth, neither do you. Humans do not know that, yet God is sovereign, not us. And out of that sovereignty, we can live in faith, yet still not certain about what is true. We confess that we live on the law of love. Apart from every other law and regulation, it is the law of love above everything else that Christ came to teach us about. Last week at Pentecost, we proclaimed that we live on the power of the Holy Spirit, whose work is to reveal the way of God and Jesus Christ with us in a way that brings us together reconciled in unity community, especially when we do not agree. This morning, I would like to share with you how we are finally called to stand on Jesus Christ and the way of Jesus Christ, the final, deepest, and most foundational confession that we have as Christians He is the way and the truth and the life, he says in John. And Paul says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. In him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. For Christians, Jesus Christ is the reason that we have faith. And the way of Christ is the way we are called to live our lives. Take this morning's passage from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29. It ends the Sermon on the Mount, which begins, as you remember, with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The Beatitudes. He talks through those Beatitudes about how life is turned upside down in the very way we expect. And then for the next three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens up to us a new way of understanding life, how it's not about power but powerlessness, about its humility and, and forgiveness that helps us see, about how we're not called to judge others or to act in revenge, to forgive our enemies seven times seventy He tells us about how we deal with our anxiety, about how we're supposed to be in relationship with money, our own self-righteousness. And in those three chapters, he opens up to us what the kingdom of God is all about. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount with these words. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. It is often said that Jesus Christ is the solution to our problems and the answer to our questions. That his truth and his life and his way offer us the remedy to all that ails us, both spiritual 
and material, that we just need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and our lives will be changed for the better immediately. And while I agree with this, absolutely, it has also been true in my life, and I think the surprising irony about Jesus Christ that before he is the solution to all our problems, he is the problem for all our solutions. He was the problem for the religious authorities in his day who went by the book and knew what was right and wrong. If it came down to law or grace, regulation or love, Jesus chose the latter. Touching the unclean like lepers, Gentiles, healing on the Sabbath, eating and drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes, including the outcasts in every gathering, even eunuchs, the worst of the worst, into his kingdom. He turned the whole understanding of who's in and who's out upside down. He was the problem for the political and the military and governmental powers in his day and in ours because he confesses that only God is Lord and that patriotism, violence, nationalism, militarism, and social and economic politics are idolatry when we believe that they will offer us security. He was the problem for the zealots and the radicals in his day and in ours for the same reason, showing that coercive power used to get one's way in any form is against God's will. He was and is the problem for theologians and scholars. Was he human or divine or both? Did he have the mind of God too or just the mind of humanity? Did he exist, pre-exist before he was born or did he only exist after he was born? And was he truly uh, uh, born by virtue of the power of the Spirit through the Virgin Mary or was it something else? What was his essence after he was resurrected? Was he just a good and moral loving man, maybe the best man alive, uh, or was he also God incarnate who revealed more about who God is and what God wills than anyone in history? When he said that he is the way and the truth and the life, did he mean that it is only by me, that only I am the way and no one else comes through uh, any other way than through me, or did he mean that my way and my truth and my life, wherever that is found in history and in every place, is the way and the truth and the life? He was the problem for his family, who thought at times that he was out of his mind, infected with demons, and always tried to draw him back in line, just as he is the problem for our families our family systems who refuse to own up to the truth of how we relate to each other and how we manipulate each other in order to stay in control and get our way and who work so hard to keep everything in our family just right in order, at least on the outside. He was and is the problem for liberals, conservatives, traditionalists, 
Protestants, Catholics, atheists, agnostics, spiritualists, and fundamentalists, which is to say that he is our problem because he refuses to be categorized, summed up, reduced to doctrine or dogma or agenda, put into a box that needs to be checked off in order for us to be saved. He is a problem that cannot be easily dismissed. And there he stands for all of us. In every way and in every time, down since the beginning of time, the first problem before he is the solution. That's why we crucified him. And why we would again if he came again. Because he continues to confront our ideas of power and who is in and who is out. And especially, you see, he continues to confront our own little egos. Those ego-driven selves who think we are right, who think we are certain, who think we know the truth, who think we do not need to change, who think in the end it's all about me, myself, and I, and after all, if it's not, why do we even need to talk about it? He is the problem because he is our problem, never letting us rest in ourselves until we give ourselves up to die. Come unto me, he said, and you will find rest unto your souls, but you must die to yourself first. If we do not understand this, we will continue to build our lives on sinking sand. The reason I keep harping on this is because when it comes to deciding what we stand on, it is for all of us, at first at least, and some of us even until the end, only ourselves that we choose to stand Only our ego needs, our ego-driven, independent meanness that I choose to stand upon until, by grace, that ego is diminished or even destroyed by the events in life or by the unconditional love of God. I was having dinner recently, a while back, with a couple of who are having deep marriage troubles. While the wife continues to work on herself and to try to grow and change, her husband is stuck in that great lie that where he is is good enough. During one particularly hot moment in the conversation, she was suggesting that he might want to do things a little differently. He responded, This is who I am. I don't need to change. You can take it or leave it. Unfortunately, I suspect she will not take it, but leave it. Either emotionally as she stays in that relationship or physically as she seeks divorce. I don't know, but it seems to me if you were in that place where you don't need to change, And nothing ever changed. Isn't that the definition of dead? 
For life itself is a process of change and evolution and growth. It's taking me 62 years to start to see how insidious that thing is in us, that ego thing, in my own life and in the lives of others, and it is especially dangerous when we claim to believe in Jesus Christ or rest that ego on any other God understanding or religion, forgetting that mostly what we really believe is our own projection of ourselves and our own independent personal translation or personification of who that God or Jesus is out of our own ego selves. It is insidious because it feels so right to us. It convinces us that we don't need to change, and it lies to us that our perspective is truth, the only truth. It makes us feel righteous, better than others, and more God-like. So here's a rule of thumb. If we think we don't need to change... If we believe that we are mostly right and they, whoever they are, are mostly wrong, it is probably our ego that is in control and not God. This is what Jesus meant when he said you must die in order to live. What Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus that you must be born again to receive the Spirit until that ego part of us that demands to be loved and respected and secured and in control and demands to be significant, until that dies, Jesus is the problem. That's why the central purpose of the gospel is to bring us to repentance, to turn us around from ourselves and back to God and to get us to the place where Christ, Christ must be formed and reformed in us, and that our lives must conform to the way and the truth and the life of Jesus if we're going to find the kingdom of God. That's why this morning's passage is so important. Jesus tells us clearly, For you who say that you follow me, saying, Lord, Lord, and using my name is not enough. Healing people is not enough. Doing miracles is not enough. Proclaiming me from the pulpit is not enough. I say to you, unless you hear and do and act according to what I have said, you will not find the kingdom of God. He says, unless we hear and do and act upon what Jesus does, then our lives will be built on sinking sand. That the foundation that we build on will eventually crumble when the storms come. But if we live and do what Jesus says, then we will live lives built on a rock. And when those storms come, our houses will not perish Notice he didn't say the storms would not come. That's a given. But how resilient will we be when they will? He says, build on this. Hear my words and act on them. 
For everyone who then hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like one who builds his house on a rock. I am told that Stephen Curry has made 77 three-point shots in a row in practice. 77 in a row. How did he get so good? He practiced. He disciplined himself to practice and practice and practice. He worked at it. He devoted himself to it. This is why Jesus says the ray is narrow. It takes complete devotion and discipline, practicing the way of Christ that we must follow in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven that is present now. The incredible power of being in relationship with God unconditionally and our brothers and sisters as well. Personal confession. Oh, it takes a lifetime. It is almost impossible, I think, to ask a young man or woman so driven by the culture of success and security to give all that up when they have a young family to care for and follow the way of Christ. There's been much talk lately about the church giving into culture regarding the marriage issue, but I think it's probably more true that we have given into the culture regarding our economic, consumeristic, and materialistic values than any other. In fact, Jesus said a thousand more things about that than he did about our sexual lives. But when you were young, you can't really understand that because we're in that phase of life where we're called to be significant and successful and to care for our families. But later in life, and and earlier too, if for some reason you have been awakened, you see how little real joy and security there is in success and significance. When the storms of life have raged and your house has come down, built on all of culture's understanding of what makes you important, you learn. Someone once said, if we live long enough, our lives will be divided up into thirds. The first third, we're educated. The second third, we produce and are successful The third, third, we serve. That being true, what if we turn that around? At least work served into the first part, two parts, too, that we serve even in our success and even in our education. My sense is that's exactly what this school at RPDS and every other school tries to instill in its students. This Christ-centeredness has been planted in the Western culture as a radically new idea, and it is the central mark of what makes us great, service. The kings and Gentiles, Luke says, lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, that is to say, Children served, and the leader like one who serves. I am among you, Jesus says, as one who serves. 
And this, you see, is what it means to follow the way of Christ. Humility and service illustrated by the washing of his disciples' feet. And when we confront him, he has made it impossible for us to finally rest in our constant search for power. After 2,000 years, he's still the great disturber. What if, what if in the eternal mind that underlies all reality, we are indeed coming face to face with the suffering servant God, the spirit of a little child? You see, this is the truth Christ makes for who he is and for who God is. He spent his youth in a carpenter shop. He lived his days in simplicity. He gathered with the sick, the outcast, the lost, the least, the last. Rather than those who seemed to be whole, prosperous, successful, and good, he unapologetically claimed to represent accurately and authentically the character of God. He announced the forgiveness of sins to all people, especially to those who thought they were the most sinful. His life was one of self-spending rather than self-saving, and so was his death, which was that of a public criminal. After death, he appeared in a bodily as well as spiritual way to a great many peoples whose lives were completely changed and transformed by him, and the story goes that he does so still. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saying that God is like him. That's what God is, this one in Jesus, and that is to believe that suffering love rather than sheer power stands at the center of truth. It is to be convinced that suffering and long-suffering love constitutes the pillars upon which this universe is built, built on not just what he said, but what he did His words and his deeds all brought a credence to his truth that the last shall be first, that the lost shall be found, and that the sinner shall be forgiven, and that the worst of us is loved as much as the best of us. It is this love shown clearly in Jesus Christ for us that calls us to love radically each other, and it is upon this that we stand Do this, just live with him for a year through his words found in the Gospels and through the fellowship of believers in the church, through his way as it is paved there, taking care of those who are least and last and lost. Pray to him, for him, in him, and through him. Stand on him, his words and his deeds with all you are and all you do in your life. And there... He says, and I believe that we will find the solid ground we've been looking for. But there's one warning, and you know what it is. There may be a large remodeling project in store for us, even a complete teardown in order to conform to the new foundation, which is the rock upon which we will build. Let us bring forth our lives and our labors in our discipleship to Jesus Christ.